Well, welcome to week four of movement. Um, just to let you know where we're headed at the end of our time together today in this gathering, uh, we're actually going to sing that last song that Jenny um, just led us in. We're going to sing it again. So just to let you know, that's what's coming. We're going to worship God together one more time before we leave today. Um, this collection, we've been discussing how following Jesus requires action. It requires us to move. So in our moving, what are we meant to do? If each of us has a part to add to this beautiful kaleidoscope that is a healthy church, how do we contribute our most brilliant selves? In week one, we talked about being spiritually engaged rather than complacent. And in week two, we talked about living a life of worship. And in week three, I think that one might have been our favorite week for all of us, we talked about ways to ensure our actions line up with our beliefs instead of being a bunch of hypocrites. I hope that you have enjoyed unpacking this in your villages and that you are growing and learning together within this community. And this week, we're going to talk about how we are meant to find our value in Christ. In Christ alone, we are meant to find all of our value. And as Bill mentioned, um, today is actually the seventh anniversary of our church being established here in the neighborhood. And so I want to talk to you for just a second about October 18th, 2015, in the cafeteria of Helms Elementary, two young pastors, some might also describe them as dumb pastors, Bill and I, hosted the very first gathering of Village Heights Church. After selling almost everything we owned, moving our family of, at the time, just three to the Heights, becoming entrenched in the neighborhood culture, and planning for the start of something incredible, these two, much younger than they are today, pastors, witnessed almost 50 people show up for that very special day. And most would call that a huge success. In fact, for many months prior, that success had been assumed. You see, on paper, and you're gonna, for a second, you're gonna think, wow, she sounds really, really cocky. And I'm just gonna tell you, yes, if I'm repeating anything I said seven or eight years ago, I was actually pretty prideful and pretty full of myself and pretty cocky. Because on paper, we looked overqualified to plant a church. After going through rigorous trainings and specific evaluations, we consistently passed with flying colors, right? Whoever held the proverbial stamp of approval always found our file at the top of their pile. I realize that today we're celebrating seven years of being established as a church, but that's not why I wanna tell you this story. The reason why I wanna tell you this story is because the launch day of Village Heights was one of, if not the most, humbling experiences of my entire life. I brought a picture today to show you what launch day looked like. Um, our kids actually still go to Helms Elementary, so we're in this cafeteria pretty regularly. Um, but this is a picture of that Sunday, and based on all of the church health trends and all the books and wisdom for people who have already planted churches and all the people who are like, this is how you plant a church in a city center um, without you know, a parent church to invest in them. If they were looking at this picture, 
or reading about that day on paper, they would absolutely say, wow, what a success. For us to have over 25 people, honestly, was a success. And we were pushing 50. Like, there's more in the back. Like, I'm already trying to, like, you're like, my pride's already kicking. I'm like, there's more people. Like, you see, there's, there's more people. I promise, I promise, there's more people. But what I see when I look at this picture, beyond just the empty chairs, what I see when I look at this picture is I know absolutely who every single one of those people was. Because in this picture, what you can't tell is that over 80% of the people who were there on launch day were just well-wishers. So that very next Sunday, they did not come back. They were not part of this church. They were there to love us and celebrate us and send us off in style and then never come back again. So while the room might have been kind of full, the next Sunday, it was not at all. This first year of pastoring this church taught us how to find our value in humbling us, taught us how to find our value in Jesus alone instead of finding our value and the accomplishments we were trying to produce for him. Because over the next year, God proceeded to strip every ounce of pride that Bill and I thought we didn't have until we truly learned how to be humble. Simply because of the nature of humanity, we are all in this continual fight against our own selfish pride. We could surely go around the room and each one of us tell about those moments when we know we were humbled to our knees. Proverbs 16, 18 even warns us, what does it say? Pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before the fall, it's said in some translations. If we're talking about destruction, chances are good, pride happened right before that. So we're talking about the way we are meant to move on this journey. So we have to talk about humility. Because he is our loving father, God wants nothing more than to steer us away from the inevitable destruction caused by our own selfish pride. There's this old saying that one of the most loving things you can do for someone is tell them the truth. So my hope for today is that God would speak the truth directly to us, that he would challenge us and change us by the power of his word so that we will leave forever changed. So we're going to look at a story today in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. And Jesus tells a story, it's a parable, about two men. They're two different men who are going to the same place for the same purpose. And Jesus is speaking to a very specific audience. And this audience would have, this initial hearer of this parable, would have had an initial understanding of how different these two men were. Because the story is about a Pharisee, who would have been seen as the good guy, and a tax collector, who would have been seen as the bad guy. So on hearing this story, they would have immediately seen this as a good versus evil sort of thing. And as Jesus unfolds the story, he explains how one of them leaves this moment in the temple right before God, and the other doesn't. But it's not going to be who we think. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says this, Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. It's important that we note who Jesus is speaking to. He's intentionally speaking to a specific audience 
for a specific purpose. Some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. And Jesus says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. And surely the initial audience would have heard that and gone, oh yeah, despised, absolutely. Tax collector, just the worst guy. In this corner, we have a respected religious leader for this day and time. There were 613 laws in the Old Testament. So knowing that he was a Pharisee, we would absolutely assume that he would have had every single one of those laws memorized. Not just memorized, but he would have followed them to a T. And in the other corner, we have a guy whose profession was the most despised in all the land. Tax collectors spent their days making money from the people in their own hometown to fund the acts of oppression performed by the Roman Empire. Both of these men go to church to talk to God, and this is what happens. In verse 11, Jesus continues, The Pharisee stood by himself, distanced from the crowd, almost looking on in judgment to everyone else in the room, and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. So this Pharisee is praying to God, the creator of the universe, and saying, thank you for making me so much better than everybody else. Thank you for keeping track of all of the good things that I do. Thank you for keeping record of how amazing you've made me and how set apart I am. Here's what's odd. He wasn't necessarily wrong about his observations of himself. Knowing that he was a Pharisee, that means that we know by the age of 12, he would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Not the names. He didn't like know those were the first. He had the entire books Memorized, like he would have started in the beginning God created, and he would have memorized all the way through the end of those first five books. He would have spent a lot of time studying scripture and surely would have some good things going for him. But somewhere along the way, he stopped viewing all of the good things in his life as a gift from God and started viewing himself as a gift to God. Before we look at this story and judge the Pharisee, we'd be wise to acknowledge the Pharisee within us. Instead of, God, thank you for making me a part of a church where I get to contribute to lives being changed. So often it's more like, God, you're welcome that I showed up today. You're welcome that I'm here. We stop seeing the good things in our life as a gift from God and start seeing ourselves as the gift to God and it's pride. Pride promises us three things. It promises us self-sufficiency. I've got it all under control. I've got it all going on. I don't need anybody, anything. Look at all the good things I have accomplished. It promises us self-importance. I have value. I am important. I have an important job. I serve in a leadership position. I am a big deal. I can do it on my own and I've created my own value 
So I must be worthy of self-exaltation. Pride promises us self-sufficiency, self-importance, and pushes us towards self-exaltation. Look at me. Pride is so sneaky. It's an inward emotion that leads to outward actions that we wouldn't normally want to be associated with. It's like the difference between my older brother's first car and my first car. See, my older brother was four years older than me, and he started driving in 1996. Some of you are math wizards, and you can do the math. It's fine. You can figure out how old I am. I'm 37. Focus. That's how old I am. So in 1997, he started driving, and his very first car was a 1987 Chevrolet Corsica. And this wasn't just any, like, random Corsica. This thing was like, to call it green would be a really generous assumption. It was like a greenish, yellow, brown, like a booger with some blue in it. Like it just was an awful color. I even tried to Google it to figure out what color it was. I swear to you, that thing had to have had a custom paint job because I could not find this color. Like there is not a Pantone code for the color of this car. And he was so proud, right? Your first car as a teenager, it's a big deal. I, on the other hand, had status to uphold, and I would not be seen dead in that car. While I should have been so excited to have a little bit of independence and to have my own personal chauffeur, if you're a sister with a brother, you understand, like, they are there for your benefit. And I should have been so excited to have that little bit of independence. But anytime we drive down the street and we were getting near to one of my friend's house, I would, like, slink all the way down in the seat. Like, maybe they won't see me in this booger green car. Flash forward four years, I started driving in 2001, and my first car was a 2000 metallic teal Mitsubishi Eclipse, fully loaded with a sunroof. It was so adorable. Okay, what a brat. Like, same parents. I don't know what happened. I don't know what the disconnect was, but that was my first car. So when I got in my first car, I made sure that sunroof was always open so that people could see me, so I could stick my hand out and go, hey, girl, hey. Like, I needed everybody to know that was my car. What changed? The car gets you from point A to point B. Honestly, took me to the same places I was going with my brother. Same amount of time. Nothing different. What changed? My inner emotion caused me to have a very different outward response, outward actions. That's what pride does to us. We experience the emotion like the Pharisee, and that leads us to outward actions that we would never normally want to be associated with. Actions like comparison. So often pride shows up in our lives when we compare to others. Would you look at what that person did, said, wore? How could they? I can't even imagine. I wouldn't be caught dead. We lift ourselves up by pushing others down. When it comes to comparison, a group that I would argue is one of the most regular offenders is parents, right? We look at other people's kids and we're like, man, I'm an okay parent, but woo, they are real bad. Like their kids are crazy. Their kids gonna end up in jail. Like they so bad. And why do we do it? Simply so we feel better about ourselves. We feel better about all of our own shortcomings. We lift ourselves up by pushing others down. Maybe it's not comparison for you. Maybe for you, pride shows up with the thought of, I don't need God. 
I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I've met a lot of other like Christ followers and I'm doing better than they are. So I don't know if I necessarily need God. I'm doing okay on my own. Maybe pride looks like fault finding for you. You're an expert at seeing everybody else's flaws because it's much easier to point out what's wrong in their lives than to let God show you what's wrong in yours. Maybe it's not fault finding for you. Maybe your pride looks like attention sinking. You're more concerned with everybody seeing the good things you're doing rather than producing something as an act of worship to our God. Regardless of what pride looks like in your life, here's my assumption. Now, I'm not a psychologist. I have been a pastor for two decades, and so I do think I know a little bit. But my assumption is, I don't think that most of us struggle with pride because we wake up every morning thinking we have it all together. Some of you might. Some of you might wake up and think, I'm killing it. I'm firing on all cylinders. Everybody just needs to take a lesson from me. That's awesome. Good for you. But I think most of us struggle with pride because we wake up every morning knowing we do not have it all together. We have no clue what we're doing. We're not as awesome as we present ourselves. And so we spend all day, our only goal is to convince everybody and God and ourselves that we actually know what we're doing. So maybe for most of us, pride shows up in the sneakiest way. Maybe it shows up as reverse pride. That self-deprecation that makes it to where we can't even receive a compliment with a simple and gracious thank you. Instead, we have to deflect it with sarcasm. Or maybe it's the I nevers. I could never do anything great for God because I don't have a gift like fill in the blank. Or maybe it's the woe to me. My life is so hard and I deserve better. The problem with reverse pride is the exact same as overt pride. It starts in the exact same place. It starts with me. My value is based on what I can accomplish and how I compare, just like the Pharisee. Regardless of what pride looks like in each of our lives, the problem is the same. When we're full of ourselves, there's no room for God. If I'm full of myself, there's no room in my life for God. Look at the Pharisee's prayer. I've got it all together. I'm better than everybody else. There's no room for God in that, but Jesus offers a different way. We're going to pick back up in our story, going back to verse 13, and it starts with, but the tax collector. Jesus is drawing the division. He's showing the contrast between what happens next and the prideful prayer of the Pharisee. In verse 13, he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. God, don't give me justice. Don't give me what I deserve. Have mercy on me because I am a sinner. The tax collector understood one thing. If God doesn't intervene in my story, there is no hope. 
there was actually a way under the law for this tax collector to be restored. Based on the law that everyone would have known, this tax collector could have been made right. He could have been restored in the eyes of everyone in the town if he would have paid back every single cent that he had taken plus 20%. Every single penny that he had taken for his entire life plus 20% interest. Who could do that? Like who would have the ability to do that? God, if you don't intervene in my situation, it's absolutely hopeless. This is what Jesus says about the tax collector's prayer in the next verse. He continues, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, not the guy who had the whole Bible memorized, not the guy who performed all these religious acts for everyone to see, not that guy, the sinner returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, when we're full of ourselves, there's no room for God. But when we empty ourselves, we're in the perfect position to be filled back up by God's grace. When we humble ourselves like the tax collector and freely admit that we don't know what we're doing, we're in the perfect position to be overwhelmed by his grace. And here's why that's good news. Maybe you're here today, maybe you're listening to this online, and you're identifying with all of the icky parts. Or maybe life circumstances have already humbled you. Maybe you've come in here today like the tax collector, knowing that you need God to intervene. He wants to do that. He wants to bring mercy. He wants to bring hope to your situation. He wants to bring forgiveness. All we have to do is empty ourselves out and be filled up by God. If I'm being honest, I was not thrilled to look at the calendar and figure out that today was the day that I was preaching and this was the topic that we were gonna be discussing because acknowledging and facing my own pride, it's not fun, like I don't know if I'm making it look fun or not. If I am, it's a total lie. I don't enjoy digging up all of those feelings of failure and pride from launch day. It did not feel good, it doesn't feel good now. And if I were to go down the list of all the things that people said prior to the launch of Village Heights, Go down the list of all the beautiful, encouraging things that people said. This church is going to be amazing. You're going to do so many great things for God. It's going to be busting at the seams. Like, you would understand a little bit of why it was so disheartening. It didn't happen right away, and we didn't know how to fix it. If our value is based on what we're producing for God but we have nothing to show for what we're doing, how much value do we really have? Some of you are at church today and you understand that feeling all too well. I have a problem and I don't know how to fix it. Maybe it's a broken relationship. We did better than most, but now it's broken and we don't know what to do. Maybe you're in a financial situation that you never intended to be in and you don't know how to pull yourself back up. Maybe you're struggling to find your purpose. 
I can't fix it because I don't know what's even left to try. If you've ever experienced a season of not knowing what to do, you know that it's frustrating and isolating. For Bill and I, it wasn't just a few days or weeks. It was an entire year before we felt like our heads were above water. Because two weeks after the first gathering of Village Heights, we found out that I was finally pregnant with the baby that we had prayed and hoped for for years and years. And while that was so exciting and we were so thrilled, it was like you were drowning and someone threw you a baby. Like it was just so overwhelming to have a toddler and a brand new church and then find out two weeks later, you're gonna have another one. Because if it would have happened just a few months prior when we had planned, it was in the binder and I don't understand why God didn't read the binder. Like when we had planned, Bill had a normal job with really great corporate health insurance. We owned our own house with plenty of space for our adorable growing family. But now, here we are, having sold everything. We moved into a two-bedroom apartment on the second floor with a dog, crazy town, without fancy health insurance, leading a church that had dwindled down to about 10 people. And I'm honestly probably being generous when I say 10 people. What were we even doing here? What was God's plan? How was he going to be glorified in all of this mess? I know that you hear us talk about action groups a lot. And if you've been at Village Heights for any amount of time, you're probably one of those people that when you hear us say action groups, you're like, again, with this, these people, they won't stop. And yes, they are an incredible opportunity to accomplish incredibly audacious things together and learn a lot along the way. But the part of the story that we don't tell as often is that our very first action group saved this church and saved your pastors. When God gave us the idea to do something outside of ourselves, to stop looking at our own situation and criticizing everything that was going wrong and to focus on accomplishing something that could only happen by the power of God, everything changed. Everything changed almost in an instant. Bill and I had a choice to make. We could either look at our situation like the Pharisee and say, God, statistics say that we're supposed to be an instant success, so you better pay up. Or we could look at our situation like the tax collector. God, without you, this is hopeless. Without you, this is meaningless. Without you, what are we even doing? Did our circumstances immediately change? Absolutely not. Not in the slightest. Did our perspective? Yes and amen. While I don't ever ever want to go back to that first year of church planting, I wouldn't trade it for anything because I know what it feels like to experience mercy and grace. I know what it feels like to be completely and wholly dependent and devoted to God. I know what it feels like to experience his goodness. I know what it feels like for him to love me so much that he will confront me with the truth 
That is, the road of humility is the better way to live. Because not only are you in the best position to receive God's grace when you're completely empty, you're also in the perfect position to be used by God. When we empty ourselves out, we are in the perfect position to be used by him, for him to show up and show off in our lives. Humility is a position of strength. So often we paint it as a weakness, but it takes full strength to stand on the word of God and declare his truths and his promises in your life. When we empty ourselves out, our circumstances probably won't change right away. They might not change that day, that month, that year. Your circumstances might never change, but your perspective will. God shows up in our lives and allows us to be a part of, allows us to look into, allows us to see new life. While I am constantly battling my own selfish pride. While you are constantly battling your own selfish pride, we're humans. I will never stop being proud of what Jesus is allowing me to be a part of. I will never stop being proud of his people. I will never stop being proud of his church. I will never stop being proud of what he allows us to accomplish together. And once I started to realize more fully what he was doing through this church, his church, I found a greater understanding of Micah 6, 8. It says, the Lord has told you what is good. He already told you. And this is what he requires of you. He told you because he needs you to know, this is what I require, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Why is that what he requires? Of all the things, of all the stipulations that God could put on us, the only thing it says he requires is to do what's right, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. But Matthew 5, 16 adds to this thought by saying, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that, this is why it's important, so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. It's not your job to be perfect. It's not my job to be perfect. It's not any of our jobs to be perfect. It is our job to embrace our imperfections and point back to a perfect God. We don't want you to leave today without the opportunity to empty your pride. And already, I mean, it hurt me a little bit just saying it. Pride is something so near and dear to us. It's the warm blanket that we wrap ourselves in to convince ourselves and everybody else that it's all gonna be okay. But God is calling us to something greater. He's calling us to do what's right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. So we don't want you to leave thinking you have it all together thinking you have to keep it all together because you don't. We wanna create a space for the next few moments where you can talk to God, 
where you can pour out all of your pride, all of those moments of comparison, all the moments of I could never, all of the moments of God, I'm doing just fine, I don't need you, and be filled back up by him. Okay, great, I'm ready, you've convinced me. How do I do it? You have to get outside of yourself. And while I'd love to load us all up in a party bus and like go do an action group real quick, that would be great. But what we're about to do is just as powerful, just as meaningful. Because what I want you to do is as Jenny and Tim lead us in yet not I, but Christ through me, I want you to stand and worship. And maybe you lift your hands. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe it feels a little weird, that's okay. Let your pride go. Do something outside of yourself. Maybe you have a conversation with God. I think so often we think that prayer is this unattainable spiritual ritual. It's just a conversation with God. Maybe you reach out to somebody beside you and you ask them to pray with you for what you're going through. Do something that stretches you. If it hurts, you're in the right place. If it feels weird, you're on the right track. Keep going. So I'm gonna pray, and then when I'm done, let's stand and worship and see what God has for us. Lord, we love you, and we are overwhelmed by your goodness. Thank you for all of the incredible things that you pour out on us. Thank you for the power of your word that challenges us and changes us and shapes us into people who look more like you. God, today we come to you as the tax collector. With all of our brokenness, all of our pieces, all of our chaos, knowing that there is no other place we can find restoration than in your hands. So God, would you pour mercy out on us today? God, don't give us what we deserve, but instead, would you give us grace? Would you help us, these broken sinners, as we empty ourselves out, would we only be filled back up by you? Because God, we know it has nothing to do with any of our abilities, any of the value we can add to ourselves. It is only by the blood of your son that we have anything good in this life. So God, we take these next few moments to give it all to you, to empty out our hearts so that we can be more like you. Amen.